Welcome to the Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Words, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work. How being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Happiness Podcast, I'll be speaking with people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who have had career changes to entrepreneurs who have forged their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. Hello. Uh, Today I'm talking to uh, Paul Dreschler, who has had a phenomenally successful business career as a CEO and as a chairman, uh, and is also president of the CBI. Uh, Paul, uh, welcome to the podcast here at WeWorks in Devonshire Square uh, in central London. Uh, would you just like to start by saying a little about your career and the multitude of things that you've done over the years? Look, I'm thrilled to be here. Look, I've, I've got every reason to be the happiest man on planet Earth. I started my first job in a department store in Dublin selling cameras out of the top of Grafton Street. So from a very early age, I learned how to deal with customers and to sell. And I think learning how to sell is one of the most valuable skills I could have learned. So I schooled in Dublin. I'm the son of a Czech refugee and an Irish mother. Uh, and they did. I was so lucky that they both valued education hugely. Uh, our, our house was like a library. There were books everywhere. Uh, I graduated engineering in Trinity College, Dublin. And my father became head of the business school. So, look, I was just so lucky. And I went to work for the greatest industrial company in the United Kingdom in 1974, 1978, uh, ICI on T Took my engineering degree there, worked on the factory floor, doing maintenance, doing engineering, learning about people, working with 22 different trade unions. It was the best school for learning about management, about teams, about individual development. Ten years in the factory, and then all the rest of my life is in running businesses. So uh, shortly after that, I went to lead uh, the ICI company in Latin America, based in Sao Paulo, Brazil. How long were you doing that for? So that, for me, was just under two years. Two years, and then you went to America? Four years, uh, Wilmington, Delaware, near, near Philadelphia. Loved it. That was integrating a blue-chip business that we acquired from DuPont with two private family-owned businesses in about nine, spread over about nine different states in the USA. It was great fun. Given your international travelling, we've only got as far as America, if you had a choice, is there a country that you'd go and start a business in? If I was going to start a business, I would do it in the USA, in a heartbeat. And where would you base yourself? I think it would depend on the business, because I do think there's something about being close to either your customers or your science base or your manufacturing base or whatever. But, you know, if I was going to start a business, Mark, I would have done it 30 years ago. 
you know, interesting, my, I've got three children. One of my sons, he left a really good job in a blue chip company the week he was getting married. And he said, Dad, I've got a great new job in a company. It's got no customers and it's got no sales. And I said, have you told your wife to be that you're just about to do this? And he's gone to work. He's in a fintech startup. He's having the time of his life. I wouldn't have taken that sort of risk for a love of our money. And do you but, think the younger generation are prepared to take risk in a way that our generation wouldn't? I definitely think they're different. But I think our, if I can, you know, if I can talk about my generation, because I'm a lot older than you, if I can talk about my generation. Look, we were children of parents who really lived the war. So, you know, what was important was our safety, our security, our pension. You know, there was a whole bunch of things were about how do we keep safe. Uh, you know, we've had uh, 75 years of peace and order in the world, and we've forgotten, you know, we've forgotten how insane the asylum was back in 1945. So, so I think we, 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 we picked up the legacy of, of those terrible times, in a way. This generation, they've never touched it. They, 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 they've never seen Marxism. They've never seen socialism. They've, you know, they've never seen all sorts of things. And I think they're, they're out. They're, I do feel the more... I mean, you know, if you haven't had five jobs by the time you're 30, there's something wrong with you nowadays. If you needed five jobs by the time you were 30, when I was young, people said, there's a problem with you. you know, I mean, that's... Is that a good thing or a bad thing? The, I, so I think it is great with one big proviso. I'm very concerned that the younger generation are not paying into a pension fund. And I think that, to, I, I'm concerned that's an accident waiting to happen in 20 years out. We, you know, we were all forced into it by our parents, by our employers, you know, even if you didn't want to, you had to do it. It's all optional now, and because buying a house is so much more challenging, you know, in, 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 you know they're all out there eating at restaurants. I was 36. For eat restaurants, my kids are. It's not, so they're living the life, uh, and that's fantastic. But you know, when it comes to sixty-five or seventy, and that's not happening, where's the money going? To? So that's the only, the only red flag I have is, is that one. How do we? You know, it's a bit like you can keep telling somebody, give them the best advice you can, but if they've never actually had the experience, and they have a different set of values and beliefs, uh, there's a limit to how much you can do. That's the only thing. But. But look, I mean, I am manically optimistic about the opportunities and possibilities for the next generation. Manically optimistic about it. But I think the only obligation you have and I have is to ensure that every child, no matter what the background, has the best possible education. It's the only gift that we can give that has long-term value. I mean, Nelson Mandela said education is the most powerful weapon with which to change the world. I passionately believe that you and I know from our time in business in the community, when you looked at the areas where we could make a difference, you know, if, if you can make a difference in schools, that to me is everything. And I, and I still think today, over three million children in the UK living in poverty, and all the data says if they started in poverty, the probability is they're going to end their life in poverty. That's not right in the sixth richest country in the world. And we know it doesn't have to be that way. If you give them the right education, give them the right skills, I think we understand much more about the skills they will need for the future, then the world's their oyster. And uh, I mean, this isn't chronological 
in terms of what you did after America, but you've done lots to support in this area. So When I left uh, ICI some years later, I went to work for one of the UK's oldest private family-owned construction property companies. And one of their biggest businesses was in refurbishment of social housing and working in sink estates. And when I went out on site in the early days, I could not believe, I could not believe the level of poverty on our doorstep. And I'd lived here. But you went to these estates and you, you know, I went to one woman's house in Newcastle and we were just decorated and wiring and so on. She gave me the biggest hug in the world. I, I was the chief executive. And I said, you know, what's with, what's with the appreciation? She said, this is the first time my flat has been decorated since England won the World Cup. So that got me involved with business as a community and, uh, and in fact, uh, former chairman of John Lewis at the time was chairing a group on regeneration, Stuart Hansen. And uh, I started working with him on this issue of regeneration. And the more I looked, the more I looked at poverty and regeneration, the more persuaded became the only way to fix this was education. Uh, and I started complaining to people like you and others in BITC. I said, look, poverty, it's all about education. And then somebody said, in the, you know, whatever, well, Paul, if you think, why, why don't you lead the education group and business in the community? This is another lesson. Open your mouth too much, you get a job. But I had the privilege of working with a, a bunch of people, Dame Julia Cleverton, who you know well and so on, uh, who were people who understood a lot about uh, education, some great school principals. And we started to figure out how can business make the biggest difference in schools. And in all my life from then, which was 15 years ago to the present, I've never talked to a company chairman or chief executive. And I said, look, would you be prepared to do A, B or C education? He said no to me. So there's tremendous goodwill in the business community towards making a difference in schools. What we have to do is make it easy for them, make them efficient for them and help the schools to build the bridges. And I feel more optimistic about that now than I did 10 years ago, but we're still not moving fast enough. And I mean, as you said, you were the CEO of Waits, I mean, massive construction business, uh, did brilliantly there. But on education, uh, teach first? So uh, I, 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 following my, my time at a business, uh, business in the community, or as I've been doing that, uh, teach first, which I think is the most significant intervention in education in the UK. So I went in to chair that. I'm completing my sixth year this year. Delighted to have announced uh, my successor about two weeks ago, uh, Dame Vivian Hunt from McKinsey. So I'm thrilled uh, about succession. But it's, you know, what a great idea. Find immensely talented people who are restless and want to make a difference in the world and place them to teach in the poorest schools. It's a fantastic Straight formula. Straight from university. Straight, well, out of university into an intense six-week mm -hmm. uh, training program, and then into schools, but supported by mentors and yep. coaches and so on. Yeah. It works brilliantly, but we know in the world of business, give me great talent, and I can do anything. Why would it be different in schools? So it's been, uh, and not only that, you know, two-thirds of them, 62% actually, stay in teaching. They didn't start out, but they, that's fantastic. And then university? You're um, involved with a university? Well, again, my early career started on Teesside, uh, and, and a few years ago, somebody said, would you be Chancellor of Teesside University? And I said, look, 
there's nothing. I'm not a chancellor in a hundred years. And they said, let us come and explain to you why we want you to be the chancellor. So I'm, I'm privileged to be chancellor of Teesside University. It's a great example of a vital university at the centre of one of the poorest parts of the UK. And it's making a fantastic difference. It is number three in the world in terms of animation. Three, number three in the world, teaching students about animation, giving them degrees in, in animation, digital technology. You know, this generation, they can change the world. I, I mean, I think the world's, great, the, the world's great problems can be solved. We just unleash this raging talent that's all over the place. And if that wasn't enough, uh, you're also um, uh, chairing London First. The most exciting, vibrant, dynamic, diverse capital city on planet Earth, London. And London first came up, I said, no, I won't do it. I met Jasmine Whitbread, absolutely fanatically enthusiastic, driven chief executive who's passionate about the agenda. And when she was finished with me, I said, yes, I'll do it. I mean, London is so important. We have a big challenge at the moment in, in, in the UK. We've got all sorts of issues of division. But we've, we've got to such a daft place that we're concerned about London's success relative to other parts of the UK. And the reality is London is competing with New York, with Beijing, with Tokyo, with Frankfurt, with Berlin, Paris, Dublin. That's what we have to compete with to sustain and contribute successful capacity going forward. So we're just now doing a big rethink on what do we have to do now for the next 10 to 50 years so London retains its premiership title. And there's a number of, you know, if we were in business, you'd say, what are your most valuable assets? How do you nurture them? Well, UK, one of our most valuable assets is our universities. We should be nurturing the hell out of them. Uh, we, we were, until last year, the number one provider of soft power leaders in the world. If you said top leadership in the world, where do they go to university? UK was number one. Last year, the Americans passed us out. Now, none of us like to be knocked off the top part, but that's what happened with the universities. London is without question the most successful capital city in Europe, I would argue, beyond. We need to nurture that. We need that to so London first is just about tapping into people like you and, and other people in the world of business and say, how together do we contribute ideas, solutions, work with uh, the mayor, Sadiq Khan, to, to make sure that London retains its title? And that's, you know, th this city, 13 million people, 4 million come from outside the UK, 4 million come from outside London, and 4 million, that's, that is the most exciting, diverse manifold. That is why we have such a vibrant software and technology industry. It's why you have your business. It's that diversity that is enabling us to do innovation and smart solutions that others can't do. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, fanta I mean, it's fantastic. And then if that weren't enough, you chair Bibby. So Bibby Line Group is a sixth generation private family business headquartered in Liverpool, 200 years in shipping. Today it does everything from financial services to retail, the cost cutter franchises, uh, Bibby Line Group. It does maintenance of offshore wind farms. Uh, it does uh, road distribution. It's a diversified family business. Uh, all about people. And if you look 
the thing that defines these family businesses brilliantly is their values. They state their values, but they live their values. So, you know, you don't see stuff on paper that isn't real. And, and that thing to me, you know, authenticity, such an important... And in fact, if, if I look at this dreaded B word at the moment, Brexit, the biggest fallout, to my mind, because we can deal with all the economics, all of this stuff, we'll be fine. But the biggest fallout is an intensity of division cut 17 different ways at the moment. North, south, east, west, rich, poor, black, white, everything. We, we're fueling, you know, and that to me is a terrible thing. And that's what, what makes it so important that all of us think, how do we lead? So we, we pull back from that because we have, to my mind, inadvertently allowed we have allowed and fostered, as leading adults in society, people to incite hatred, people to incite... You know, we have racism at a level we haven't had for 40 years in this country. I mean, that just... It is so un-British. It is so far away from the next generation. I mean, if we don't fix it, they will all leave. Not just the ones that came from outside the UK, but the UK kids who aren't citizens of nowhere, are citizens of the world, and if we, if we foster a culture which is Remainer, Lever, North, they'll go. They'll go to some place in the world where it's nice to be. So we have to fix that urgently. And I've, I've probably, out of all of that, still forgotten some of the things you're doing. <laughs> I don't know. I've been looking, <laughs> look, I'm, I'm, look, I'm very lucky. I'm lucky. I'm very lucky. I'm at a stage in my life where I'm doing... But what an amazing career, Paul. I mean... Growing up, obviously, in a, in a well-educated family, um, going to university, going into ICI, having an amazing career with them, then going in to be CEO of Waits, which is just a phenomenal construction business, and then all of the charitable things you've done from BITC and leading in education, Teach First. Um, and spelling uh, the Prince's London, Trust, which, which Prince's you know is Trust. fantastic. You know, the stuff that's done for disadvantaged kids, I, I used to chair that for the construction industry fantastic. The campaign for youth social action, getting 10 to 20 year olds to do volunteering, mm. do fundraising. You know, we're, you know, we're gifted to have so many young people who want to change the world. We just got to do more of them. So what we're going to do now is we're going to test how happy you are at work. But I think we all probably... <laughs> know that by your nature you are engaged uh, and happy. What we're going to do now is we're going to do the test. Uh, you can do it in numerous languages, but I suggest we take it in English. It would help me. <laughs> and then if you can read the question and score yourself, and what you'll get at the end of it, Paul, is a, a workplace happiness score, and it will compare you to people that look like you, if that's possible. So your age, your gender your uh, seniority, the business that you work in, etc. And then it may have areas for development or will point out more likely where you are well ahead of the average. Do you feel appropriately rewarded for your work? I do, absolutely. Uh, Was there ever a... So are you a 10? The reward, you know, the, the only, it's only the business role, everything else is, is pro bono. And, you know, what's the reward? A million children whose lives are changed in school? Can you pay me more than that? Or uh, influencing 
business conditions and, and government policy, be it in CBI or London First, that's, that's a great reward. And was there ever a time in your career where you didn't feel appropriately rewarded? So I graduated with an engineering degree thanks to my parents and school and other things. So I got off to a good start, and I think, to be honest, I was always ahead of the game. I mean, you know, relatively speaking, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have said I was a bandit, but I was, you know, I mean, I think when you marry your first children, you know, you, you know, and you, that big mortgage, you know, in those days, you'd like take out the biggest mortgage you can, and, you know, it was like three, three or three and a half times salary, and people thought it was outrageous, and now they're borrowing, I don't know, seven or eight times, insane. So... You know, there were times when, you know, I, I, I might have had to say we, we might spend a bit less, but no, I can't. Okay. Do you feel recognized when you do something well? You know, I do. I, I mean, I understand exactly what that question is. I think the more senior you are, the less often you're recognized, but it's such a huge treat when it happens. And I always say to people, never underestimate the value of a couple of nice words to someone, and the more senior they are, the more impact it will have because it doesn't happen very often. But I do, you know, do I feel recognised? Uh, uh, you know, you know, I do actually. I'm just, Would but you? I'm probably, you know, it's it's an important, you know, I think recognition is important to me. Recognition of others is important, but recognition of self. I mean, I want to make a difference. I want to have impact. You know, I want people who work with me to to have fun and enjoy it and feel they're succeeding. And do you know on average how often people are thanked for doing a job well? About zero 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 point zero 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 one percent of what they should be, Mark. It is, it is the most underutilised reward mechanism in this country. Uh, to, on, on average, people are thanked once every four and a half months. But, Shocking. Isn't it? But how mad is it? You know, how mad is it when it is... You know, it's, it's a free resource saying thank you. You know, there's not a limit to the stock. And all the research says that people value that more than pay. Yeah, no, I... In I, terms I, of I, engagement. I, 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 I mean, I certainly think you've got to pay them enough to, to live. But the power... You know, it's even, you know, when you're out in a restaurant, does it hurt a lot to be nice to the waiter waitress say, oh, thank you, or, or please tell the chef that was the best dinner I've had this evening or this week or this it's all easy you know now I, okay. I so and by the way if we want the world to be a better place we want to be happier that's the best fuel available for doing it in my view so what are you going to give yourself then do you feel I'm going to give it nine because I can always have a bit more okay do you have enough information to do your job well you know I think at this stage in, in my life what stuff I do I do but I, I do recall stages in my life and career where you just didn't have enough information. I mean, you know, I'm at a stage where I've got, I guess, so much experience and I know where to tap into resource. I feel, you know, I generally have enough. It's, but you never have, you know, you never have enough, but do you have enough to fly the plane? Yes. Uh, do you have enough for all eventualities? You know, maybe not. But it's not an issue for me, but I understand it very much as an issue. And in terms of all the things you do, is there one organisation where you think, Oh, I, I wish I had a bit more information to be a more effective chairman. Well, I think the not so much more effective chairman, but I think, again, if you're trying to influence government policy, you're trying to influence to create the best conditions for business, then I think 
a really important ingredient is, is analysis and evidence. So I think having really good analysis and evidence is very important to do that. Without that, it's my opinion versus yours. Uh, so that's the area where I think you can... I think the other thing where it's tough, actually, uh, I do think in a lot of the not-for-profit sector, charity sector, it's easier said than done to do a correlation between your effort and your impact. You know, in theory, yes. But, you know, if a school gets 98% of the kids getting three A to A stars, is that because of the teachers we provided from Teach First or the school principal or the parent, you know? So I think that's... Okay. So okay, I'm going to give that a 10 so we, because we've got 26 questions. And um, Do you feel information is open and shared with your work? Uh, I, I do. And I, I'm, I'm be always very sensitive anywhere I go to. I think transparency is a vital ingredient for trust. You know, I, I often, you know, when people say, why do you need the information? I say, you know, trust is good, but trust with verification is better. And I think, uh, I, I mean, again, now, because I know what I need, I would say more often that I have more information rather than less that I need. And that's... That's and, not on my to-do list. And as chairman, that's obviously not in the business every day. Uh, do, do you feel that you're given the information that you need to? I think people are. I think the more important thing to me as a chairman is that the chief executive or director general, or whatever, that they pick up the phone when there's an issue or problem. I don't want to report. I don't want. I, don't want to, I just want you to feel you can pick up the phone any time and say, "Can you help with this? Can you encourage this?" That to me is the transparency I want not, here's 200 pages of numbers, you figure out where the problem is. That's not transparency. So, and if you ever in your business career as a CEO, manager, had people working for you that you felt weren't open with information and created uh, issues for you? Oh, yeah, look, um, you know, if you've, worked, if you've worked all around the world, you've, you've seen every colour of that you can imagine. Uh, and you just got to gotta become aware of it. I mean, it's, uh, you've got to be sensitised to it. It's why values are, you know, if you can inculcate values of integrity and trust and honesty, that's less likely to be an issue. And, and what advice would you give to a non-executive director on a board uh, about making sure that they feel that information's been openly shared with them about what's happening in the company? I think you've got to build the relationships with the executive team. You've got to go out and visit the stores or the sites or the offices and meet the people and so on. So that you, you've got a sense of the values and the behaviours of the organisation. Uh, and then you've, you've got to, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to seek and challenge until you're able to be satisfied. You've got a, a duty in law, so you've got to keep hunting gathering until you've got enough to make a judgment. You know, you can't say, I'm sorry, can't make a decision on this, because the world keeps moving on. So you've got to do your, got to do your preparation. Uh, we, we'll say we'll say nine on the basis of you can't see it all all the time. So okay. I don't want to, I don't want to be too optimistic. Are you empowered to make decisions? Do you know? In every job I've ever done, I've always looked up and said the challenge is the layer above. And I don't think I think that's not a bad thing. But I think are you empowered? You know, empowerment to a great extent is what you take yourself, but it's also the space that you create around you. As you well know, when you're when you're a chairman. You know, you've, you've probably got all the empowerment uh, in the world. The real question is, are you creating, are you supporting that sort of culture inside the organisation? 
I think sometimes people think empowerment is absolute freedom. You know, to be empowerment has to be within some sort of framework, has to be against some sort of set of values. It's not do what you like. It's not the old the blind faith song, do what you like. It is. It's actually, you know, you're empowered, but you're empowered to be successful. You're empowered to do good things. You're not empowered to do bad things that ruin our reputation. So, uh, but I, look, I'm, you know, as you well know, uh, you get to stage F, you're pretty empowered. Do you feel trusted to make decisions? So the difference between these two questions is one, the first one, is, that, is effectively the organisation giving you the freedom within a framework to do a job. But this is more about, does the organisation, its managers, its shareholders, trust you to make decisions? So the measurement system is, if they didn't, I wouldn't be here this afternoon, <laughs> in a way. I mean, I think, look, if I look at what I do today, uh, I think what I do is indicative of the fact that people must, uh, must trust me. I think that is, that is your currency. Did you ever have a point in your career where you felt that people didn't trust you, were looking over your shoulder? No, but I, I would have been always very sensitive to, I am very strongly values-based. And I think if you didn't trust me, you didn't show you trust in me, that goes so badly against my values, I just probably couldn't work with you. So that's okay. sort of how I'd... I'd see it. How are we doing? We doing our... Yep, we're knocking through them. Do you have the resource you need to do your job well? Uh, I look again where where I am. I think, I mean the the resource very often that's the most valuable is time, and ultimately you decide how much you want to do. And the busy people are very busy. Otherwise, I have, you know, the, you know, I don't know what I, I don't know what happened before the iPhone and the iPad. I don't know how we all worked. Well, that has that has changed. We're going to give that a ten. Okay. Do you feel your views are heard at work? I think that's a, a great question, a really important question. So I think if you're in the chair, more important question is not are your views heard, but are they challenged? And I think if you're a chief executive, it isn't do they hear you, but do they challenge you? So my, you know, I feel yes. Uh, I'm heard. I mean, I think when people don't agree with me, they don't agree with me, and I think that's uh, that's uh, that that's quite important. But I think they're heard and appreciated in the roles that I do. Now, I think when you try to do government influence, they definitely hear the sounds. They don't always hear the messages, particularly if they don't want to. But um, no, I think I think you know God gave you two ears and one mouth. And using them in that proportion is, is a pretty good formula. So I do think listening and listening with respect is really important. Uh, maybe I got heard more because I shouted. So maybe I got uh, maybe as I was coming up through the ranks, I learned how to be heard. Uh, and I do think again one of the challenges in uh, as we're going for more diversity, we don't all shout at the same volume. So I think we we there's something to learn about how to get her to work. I'll give that a nine because I don't want to wreck the graphs. Do you feel the organisation cares for your well-being? I don't think I would have dreamt of that question ten years ago. I'm not even sure five years ago. Uh, I think it is. I think there's a lot more thought about well-being today. Particularly, I think we have finally
in this country legitimized recognition of your mental health. You know, I remember when I lived in the States, conversations around the table were all about how many psychiatrists did you have, and if you had more than me, you were a better person. Whereas here, you would never have dreamt of even mentioning that you'd even that even knew one. Never mind, you'd seen one. Uh, so I think that I think that's uh, we're, we're, I think well-being at work and people's concern for for well-being is rising up the agenda. And frankly, I'd say if I look at the roles I do, you know, people have said, you know, are you yeah, because I show it all on my face and my behaviour. So if I'm not myself, people will be concerned about me. But do you think, so in, in Bibby Group as chair, <coughs> so this is a question when you do become very senior in an organisation. How, how do people show their concern for your well-being? Do you have to be resilient? <coughs> do you have to be different in the sense that at other levels in the business, people are looking down and looking up, whereas when you're chairman, are people on the board saying, is Paul OK? So, so I think the toughest role of all is not the chair, but the chief executive. Uh, and I think the reality in today's world is, as a chief executive, you are on stage, the spotlights are on you. There's an awful lot of acting to be done because you're radiating signals. So I do think the danger at the more senior level is that the radiators are disguising what they're really feeling inside. Uh, so I think you have to be very thoughtful and attentive to mental health, that, that not take it for granted. And inevitably, if somebody is a chief executive uh, or a finance director or a HR director, I mean, there's going to be times when the agenda that is on their plate is awesome. And if it doesn't worry them at all, you need to be worried about them, you know, because it's natural for us to be worried and concerned the real question is, do we know how to manage it? Not, are we worried and concerned? I think we're getting better at all of that. You know, even going back, I mean, I've probably had, I've probably had, I've probably had mental health sensitivity for for a lot of years because early on in a place I was working, somebody committed suicide, and you know that just makes you all aware of. Mm. Now that was more com. It wasn't. It was a more complicated issue, but it makes you very aware and, and every time I went through restructuring and I you know my whole life I've done an awful lot of downsizing and restructuring every time I've done I've, the thing that has worried me most is what it would do to people's health and well-being you know I never the, all the other stuff was fine it was just you know but but you know the impact you know when, when we made people redundant in Brazil there was no social service system so you made them redundant you know they weren't going out to there was no dole there was no health care. You know, so teaching yourself how to deal with that is, you know, we all do it different ways, but I mean, I, I guess I learned the hard way, in a way. And what we offer on Engaging Works for every individual, free of charge, is a Myers-Briggs test, so you can understand yeah. your personality and understand how those things are likely to impact Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, again, I found that a very useful exercise to do in teams, mm. so we understand each other. Uh, better because I mean the again you have to do the Myers Briggs to really for it to dawn on you the difference between an E and an I is an extraordinary difference but when you understand it it's such a valuable insight to have so do you rarely feel depressed I would say the answer is rarely but you know there's times it'll absolutely you know I, I think depressed and, and anxiety I, I think to different degrees but at different stages I have I think when 
when I haven't felt I could control destiny is what I've actually felt the most sort of stressed in a work environment. When you, when, you, when, you, when you know you can get a team together and you can fix something, you're off to the races. But if you, know, if you can't see the way to solve the problem, or you can't diagnose the problem, because I'm an engineer by training, I just want solutions. I think so, that's a very insightful point. I think for lots of people, feeling as though they have a control over their working lives is really important. So the answer is rarely. I'll give that an eight because I think uh, that's a very low score for me. Do you feel you do something worthwhile? You know, I do now. I don't think I even thought about that for 25 years. I just felt like I was doing a job and getting the job done. But you know, meeting working with people like yourself and others where you, you, you do find if you do the right things with the right people, you can make a hell of a difference. And, and I think, uh, and I'm... I'm so lucky I've met so many people in, in, in London, the UK and the world who, who want, you know, without spending all the time, they want to make a difference and they're ready to make a difference. Teach First as a charity would not exist if it wasn't for chairman, chief executives from the financial service community giving the money to get going. Wouldn't have happened. Uh, so, and then you look at it down the road and you see the difference it's making. Go into school and talk to 30 kids about your job and your career in a way that's a bit, bit of fun. See the difference it makes. You know, I was in Middlesbrough a while ago talking with a, a, a group of kids and one, and I told my, one boy says, that could never happen to me. Well, why couldn't it? You know, that you, know, the, you can, you, you then I explained some things, and all of a sudden he said, well, maybe, maybe it could. Do I feel proud to work? I feel really proud for Teach First. I feel really proud about what the, Carolyn Fairbairn and the team at the CBI are doing, Jasmine Whitbread at, at London First is doing, uh, all those sort of organisations we've read. We'll give that a 10. How likely are you to recommend your friends and family to work at your organisation? Absolutely. I would, in each and every case, strongly. Do you feel that you're treated with respect? I do. Always? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that whatever I think of being treated with respect, I think, you know... Respect is fantastic, but respect with integrity is really important because you want to be challenged. I think that the challenge for somebody who's at the most senior level in society is people say they're at the most senior level in society, therefore they must be right. And that's the greatest disservice you can do to me is not to challenge me. Uh, so yes, I feel, but I worry about respect. Give it an eight because I haven't measured it recently. Do you enjoy your job? I love it. Jeez, I love it. I just, I love it. Uh, and I've got, look, again, I have to be honest, I've got choice. So do you enjoy your job? You're going to give it a... I'm going to give it a 10. Love it. Right, so we're now on question number 16. We're very close to the end of the questions. So the question so is... So do I feel I have a good relationship with my line manager? Well, in my case, my line manager is chairman of chief executive of companies, shareholders of a company, and beneficiaries of a charity, and... Uh, you know, interesting, just this morning, I was listening to feedback, independent survey done of all our stakeholders for London first. So do we have in place processes where uh, we get a good sense of that? I think uh, good processes for checking the relationship, uh, pretty tangible ways of knowing if it's not right. In and all did cases. you ever in your career, you know, all the jobs that you've done over all the decades, 
have a situation where you didn't get on with your line manager? And, and you know, absolutely. You know, not terribly badly, but you know, I had I worked for some brilliant managers who were great mentors and coaches, and I worked for some that were more disinterested. But you know, overall, I was well ahead of the game. But it really mattered. You know, in your first ten or fifteen years, when it really, really matters, I was I pretty good manager. And what would your advice be to somebody in their career who happens to be working with a line manager that they find difficult, challenging? Well, this is easy advice to give. It's not necessarily easy advice to apply. Uh, I think you've got to have an open conversation about it. I think if you don't put it on the table, you can't fix the issue. You might need advice on how to do that. It might be good to have a third party with you while you're doing it. But I mean, most people want to be successful, and they want other people to be successful. So when the relationship isn't good, you, you, you've got to find, how do I table this in a way where it's a win-win? You know, it, it, it's not about being antagonistic. It's about we have common purpose, common aims, and that's, that's sort of how I think about it. But I know it's easier said than done. Okay. Yeah, we'll give that. We'll give that. A, we'll give that an eight. Then it didn't take nine. Do you feel you are being developed? You know, I I see life as one big journey of learning and development. And you know, I don't think I go through a week where I don't feel that I'm I'm growing. I'm learning with new insights. Uh, and every now and then you get something very refreshing. But you know, again, if I give you uh, an example recently, I mean, I do think. Whilst there's been a lot of talk about gender diversity for a lot of years, it's only really happened in the past few. And you look at it, you say, it's dramatic when you see it. Or in Teach First, four of our 12 or 13 trustees are under 35. The difference between two of them and four of them is seismic. I mean, that for me is, you know, I, I always thought there's value in having youth around the table. But if you'd said, do you really think there's a big difference between two and four? My God, it's the difference between four on the Richter scale and 12 on the Richter scale. And I think so, so critical mass, so one BAME or one woman or one under 35 is, is good. But two or three or four or five is dramatically better. And that, I think, is a, a recent learning. So uh, I'm, I'm still on that track. Do you feel happy at work? Uh, I, I, so overall the answer is absolutely 100% yes. I think the, I wouldn't want to get across though that, you know, are there days or times when I'm not happy? Well, of course, you know, I mean, it would be inhuman not to, not to, you know, to have times when you're, you're, you're unhappy in a way. But, but I think overall, am I happy at work? Yes. I'm, you know, when I'm unhappy now, it's when, the organization is not performing, when the organization is not delivering what it should do. So if we want to recruit 1,750 new university graduates to teach in the most disadvantaged schools, I'm not going to be happy if that's only 1,400. And I'm going to be saying, but how do we ad address that? Overall, I'm happy at my work. Okay. So do you feel happy at work? Ten. <laughs> so now we've got three questions, qualitative questions, before we get on to... Uh, demographic matching, and these are what three changes would you make to be happier at work? 
okay. And you need to type these in. Yeah, 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 yeah. What well, three changes would you would you improve your workplace happiness? So I think the first thing I would put is everyone, everyone, everyone. I mean, I mean everyone knows and understands vision, values, goals, etc. So if I knew that everybody in the organization knew what our purpose was or what our mission was, or that, that to me would... would so would sharing have information? If everyone knows. It's, it's, you know, you, you know, if you think back to if if every person in the store knows how important customer service is or what excellent customer, you know, then then to my mind. And do you think we're good at that in business? Bad at that? I I look. I'm, overall, I think. You know, if you measure that across all, your, I'd say we might be lucky if the overall score is forty percent. Is it a huge opportunity? Okay. Huge opportunity. Would be would be would be the first thing. I think the second thing uh, I would say would be uh, education, training, uh, and development for the key skills. And how do you think businesses at that? Well, I know from all the work we did in the CBI, we looked at the issue of productivity nationally and uh, analyzed it place by place in the top three priorities for action. Every place in the UK was development of skills. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, I think, uh, at one level, I think bigger companies do it in various ways, but they do it, but in mid and small sized companies, we're massively under-investing, and I don't mean money, I mean time and effort and value for it. Okay. So that would be... And that's a, why we asked the question about career development in the survey. Yeah. To flush out whether people feel they're being developed or not. And then your third? I think my third is tools for the job, and that can be technology, can be travel. People are traveling to New York. Why would you make them travel back economy overnight? and go to work the next day. Uh, why would you ask them to go to work there? Why would you get them to fly all the way to Asia, not give them time to recover and rest? Why would you, you know, tools uh, allow people to work at home? Uh, child support, there's all sorts of things that we can do that can make the workplace a better place. Now, I'm, you know, I'm struggling with what's happening because I think it's all changing very fast. And, and for me, the amount of working from home, I mean, you know, Back in the 60s, if you're working from home, it meant you were unemployed. Nowadays, it's a pretty normal thing to do. Uh, how do you? I think we. I think we're miles off the pace in terms of preschool education and nursery care. You know, the time when young people both have to work and really get a housing matter. So I think there's that's that'll be my third one. So now we just have some demographic questions so that we can compare you to. I I know the answer to the first question. So the first is gender. I can do that one. Better mark that as male. What is your age range, 55 to 64, and um, that range? Are you management or non-management? There's a good question. <laughs> I'll probably put management for the, I don't think you'd be really be as non-management. 
which from this list, Travedu Chairman CEO, which industry do you work in? So you could have not for profit or you could decide uh, your Bibi job? Well, I think because I've talked so broadly today, I put in not for profit uh, because of the, the diversity of our conversation. Which country do I live in? It's the, uh, I know it begins with a U down here at the bottom. We've got that, United Kingdom. What is your ethnicity? Yeah. And that's it. So what it's happens now, Paul, in 10 seconds... Very good. ...you get your results. We run this survey, so any individual in the world can go and do this. It's free of charge. And we've had tens of thousands do it now. And then companies can do this. And uh, we've had 110 companies do it. And if you do this survey with a company, you still get personal feedback. So you yes, get the yeah, feedback yeah. as an individual, you get your own even though well. the company gets one. So we're now at the... Um, the latter stages of crunching. From all the answers you're given, you're going to come out as ridiculously happy. <laughs> so, uh, I, and I marked myself down today because I did a I did a practice run on this survey before. <laughs> it was it was higher than that. So, uh, Paul, your score is my score is nine hundred and fifty six out of a possible one thousand. And you are ridiculously ahead. The global average is six five four. And the not-for-profit sector, which always comes out ahead of the average. So people always say about pay and the importance of pay. But the fact that not-for-profit comes out so far ahead of the average shows the importance of purpose. Exactly. And doing something yeah. that you feel passionate about. So that's good. And then in each of the six dimensions, reward and recognition, information sharing, empowerment, well-being, instilling pride and job satisfaction. Yeah. You're obviously green and right at the top. And then we have the, the yeah, absolutely. And then we have the well-being index. Yeah. And this is the response to those questions about mental health that you answered. And what you can see here is you're well above the industry and well above the global average. If you were to score poorly on this, you'd be encouraged to go and take the NHS test. Yeah. And then depending on how you score there, it would take you off uh, to um, do whatever was suggested. So if you took the NHS test, would it, ch it wouldn't change these scores? No. It's a separate test? No, yeah. it's a separate test, 15 yeah. questions, and then it gives you advice on uh, what you might um, choose to do as a, yeah. as a consequence. Great. Um, the next one you get is um, uh, the stickiness index, and that's whether you'll stay or, or go uh, yeah. from the jobs that you have, and you're very sticky. The next one is the apostles and anarchists, this is how um, pro and enthusiastic you are, your business, or, or how much of a yeah, yeah. you are. And you can see there, you're as high as you can possibly get. But that's where not-for-profit industries and the global average um, is just behind that. The next thing you get is a career development yeah. index. This is on how an individual feels that they're being developed. And again, because of the way you scored, you're right at the very top corner. But this is where not-for-profit is, and this is where... Um, also uh, the global averages right now. Then you've got uh, your inclusiveness, so whether you feel included in the business, your views are heard, your contribution, and yep. again you score higher and you'll see where the global averages are. And you'll see with all of these, the global averages are much lower. because There's the two circles score. here, what's one and what's the other? So one is not for profit. And the other is for profit. And the, no, and the other is the global. So what this I gives see, you yeah, global overall. The average of all the people, right? And the average of people who are in your. So the sector. interesting thing is, there's quite a correlation between the global overall and 
and most of them are pretty close together. It depends what you take. If you take not-for-profit, yeah. um, you find that's marginally above. If you'd have put your healthcare worker, you'll find it's well below. Ah, yeah, yeah. If you're in education, it's well below. I must so, try it again with a different... So if you go in factors. and you do education, yeah. you'll get a different set of, of numbers. Um, we also tell you uh, how empowered you feel compared to yeah. others. And again, you're off the Richter. And then lastly, we tell you about sense of pride. And this is the interesting one here. So you're, again, uh, off the chart, Paul. But the industry, you can Ooh. see, is well ahead of global. So people who work in not-for-profit feel as though there's a greater sense of purpose in what they and do. And global is global all, isn't so it? So global all, all industries. All sectors. Uh, all sectors. Um, but it's all people that, um, yeah... Look like you, but it's but, the, but overall the gap between the two is not huge, which which to me is is you know that would, I think the advantage in not for profit is that much more strongly purpose and mission driven. That's, that's where that's they, right, but it's very different by country. So America, to your point about positivity, workplace happiness in America is in the seven hundreds, whereas in the UK it's in the the mid six hundreds. And so if you were taking this as an American, yeah. these bubbles would be in different places. So depending on your age, your role, the country you're in, all of these things appear differently. Yeah. But the key thing is you, you can compare yourself to other people like you within your yeah. industry. Yeah. And then if you were to do it, if you sign in, what you get is more data by every question that you yeah, answered. It's such a powerful survey in that it's really fast. It gives you an awful lot of feedback and an awful lot of food for thought. And actually, I think it's, it's also good for a team to do, to get some discussion going. And if you, if you scored poorly here and you clicked on one of these, it gives you advice on the conversation you do. might want to have with your line manager. Yeah, yeah. So we're nearly finished. Uh, I've got just two questions for you. Uh, the first is, uh, which piece of music makes you feel happiest when you hear it? So I love music. I love blues music. That is the toughest question you've asked me this afternoon, but I'm going to pick music by my favorite artist, who is Eric Clapton, and I'm going to pick Wonderful Tonight, because it is just a beautiful song about love, and many of us could have written it about our own wives at many Saturday nights. Okay, very good. And um, I thought you were going to say then that it was about me. <laughs> and then my, my very last question is, if you were to nominate somebody to take the Workplace Happiness Survey, who would it be? I would nominate any of the people who I have the privilege of working with today. It could be... Uh, John Creswell, who's the chief executive of Line Group. Jasmine Whitbread, who I think might be off the scale of many of these as well. London First. I think Carolyn Fairburn has a real interest in workplace happiness and health and all that. I mean, she'd be, uh, she'd be uh, fun to, uh, to do with. Uh, and interestingly, uh, because there is so much importance around mental health in schools, 
and for teachers. And in fact, one of the challenges is if you take a university graduate and place them to teach in one of the toughest schools in the country, or place her to teach, you know, you are putting them into a cauldron of stress and therefore an awareness of and understanding what does it take to make a school a happy place. So, you know, any, any, any Russell hobby and teach first? Any and all I'd recommend. You know, what does it take? Takes 20 minutes and you get some insights. There's seven minutes to do it without interruption. Thank On that you note, so much. Paul Dressler, business leader of Huge Note, uh, and also uh, a great contributor to uh, charity, uh, education, and all sorts of things. Thank you very much for your time. Great pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. So if you'd like to listen to more in the Workplace Happiness podcast series, just go to the business library at Engaging Works and you can listen to Martha Lane Fox or Lucy Kellaway, William Sitwell, Rebecca Humphreys and many, many more. <laughs>